Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. I cannot believe that we're already at episode 199. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) How did that happen? I have no idea, but we've been doing this 199 times. Uh, We're getting old. We're getting old. Talking about weird stuff. So we want to thank all you who've been listening. A lot, I know a lot of you've been listening since episode like two. Yeah, that's impressive. So thank you. Years of listening. Yeah, that is years (laughs) of listening. And uh, we're creeping up on episode 200 next week. That's exciting. We should have a party for that. We should have an episode 200 party. We might, I mean, we are going to have a party tonight in Madison, a free party. That's right. So if you're listening to this on Tuesday, June 5th in the morning, come on out to the high noon (laughs) patio. We're playing for a couple hours on the patio free show. A lot of fun, all ages. We'd love to see you. Yes, and we'll definitely have a party with our Patreons for the next Hangout. Yes. We can celebrate at that. Maybe we'll bring some cake. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll eat some cake and let, let everybody watch it. <laughs> uh, anyway, so episode 199, though, this is a doozy. It was really exciting to bring on, um, well, a guest host on Coast to Coast and a paranormal TV star in Canada. Yeah. Our neighbors to the north, Richard. Awesome. Richard Serrett <laughs> rhymes with carrot. <laughs> Very cool guy. Before we get to the interview, I want to preface it a little bit because we talk about one of Richard's good friends. Uh, yes. And and they were working together on a series last year. And so we talk about him in the episode, but we don't do like a real proper intro. And that is our Gary Patterson. Okay. So who is he, Mike? Okay. He was an author, rock historian, and he was on Coast to Coast like 36 times. Wow. So impressive. He wrote a book uh, on the urban legend that Paul McCartney had died and was replaced with an imp- imposter. So that book was the Walrus was Paul, and then he did a book on like guys like Robert Johnson and musicians that uh, maybe sold their soul to the devil. It was called Hellhounds on Their Trail. And so it was very tied into the rock and roll scene that we so adore. Yes, rock music, <laughs> myths, legends, and curses was mm. Gary Patterson's. Uh, expertise. That's what he got into. And he was a good storyteller and his books were cool. And him and Rich were working on a show together. And so that's just a little bit of background before we get into the interview. Because we talk about Gary a lot because they were close friends. And one of the best stories of the interview is about Gary. So I just want to make sure you guys know who he is before we jump in and talk to Mr. Richard Serrett. Veteran broadcaster Richard Serrett from Coast to Coast AM and the Conspiracy Show unearths the biggest stories from the history of rock in his brand new podcast called The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Richard reopens the cold case files and exposes the truth and the tragedy, taking listeners on a new magical musical mystery tour every week. And Richard is joining Allison and I today as we, uh, as we enter the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Richard, thank you for joining us. Hello, Milwaukee. <laughs> hey, a, little, right. a little spinal tap there. Yeah. Yes, and that always makes me think too about the That Seventy Show intro, where at the end of with Cheap Trick covering Big Star, the Big Star song, they always say at the end, "Hello, Wisconsin." There you go. A shout out to the right. the Dairy State. 
That's right. So where are you joining us today? I'm just north of Toronto, a stone's throw from Toronto. I'm in a, a town called Thornhill, an historic town called Thornhill. Awesome. Are you in the area that you grew up in? No, I'm about an hour and a half. I grew up in Brantford, Ontario, uh, the home okay. of Wayne Gretzky. For all you hockey fans out there, or as you say in all Wisconsin, right. hacky fans. <laughs> hacky fans sounds good. And uh, the the uh, it's called the Telephone City. The telephone was con- the idea for the telephone was conceived there by resident Alexander Graham Bell. It was also the the home of Jay Silverheels, uh, who was Tonto on on the right. Bone Ranger. So, for a town of about ninety thousand. It has uh, it has a few claims to fame. Phil Hartman, uh, late of Saturday Night Live, spent part of his childhood in Brand in Brantford as well. You know, I just thinking about uh, Phil Hartman because was it yesterday or the day before was the twentieth anniversary of his death? Oh, is that right? Yeah, oh, just man. this week was the twentieth anniversary of Phil Hartman's death. Like, what a ah, man! Yeah, of no, so I... many voices, so much talent, and I didn't I didn't know that Phil Hartman was Canadian. Nor I, nor I, uh, until. Maybe 15 years ago, I read that, that he was from Brantford. We never, I, I think he went to the BCI, Brantford Collegiate, sworn enemy of the Pauline Johnson Thunderbirds. So we did not cross paths. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So uh, anyway, welcome our neighbor from the Great White North. And we're, we're glad to talk to you a little bit because, you know, one of the things we always ask is, how did you get into weird stuff? Because it, it's a step, not just to be like the kind of person that likes to watch the X-Files or, hey, that's, you know, uh, the Bigfoot Hunter's on, I'm going to watch it on the televisions. Um, it's, it's the person who says, like, I'm going to be a professional weirdo that we're like, <laughs> where, how did you cross the line? You know, what was your interest in, until, we, until we were like, I'm really into this, where I'm going to make this part of my career? It's a bit of a um, disappointing story, perhaps. I'm a, I guess I'm a bit of a mercenary. I, I, I saw a market and a niche and I just, I decided to fill it. I began my career producing talk radio, but it was sort of current affairs. So the provincial budget and the garbage strike and all of that minutia, that Workaday reality stuff. And Rob Ford. Yes. You guys, you could have, you could have a two-hour show on Rob Ford every day. We could. May I, rest in peace. Well, yes, may he rest in peace. I um, Just a quick aside, I was somewhat instrumental in getting sort of Rob Ford uh, on the on the stage. He was, a, he was a, a councilman in Toronto, and I was producing a morning show. And he was like the lone conservative on a very liberal, sort of left-leaning city council who every week was talking about spending waste and so forth. So I said, let's get him on the morning show. And he became this folk hero. Uh, and and it just took off from there. Anyway, so I, that's my small claim to fame. I, I knew Rob a little bit. He was a, he was a nice fellow, actually. A uh, very genuine, authentic, deeply troubled human being. Sure, sure. I'm glad uh, to know he was a nice guy in real life. He was. Salt of the earth. Uh, but, uh, so that was sort of my background in current affairs, talk radio. And then, uh, the program director at CFRB 1010, which was a, which is, was a legendary blowtorch station went on the air back around 1927. What does blowtorch station mean? Now, that sounds like a station, the kind of station I want to be, I want to hear about, but I don't be very close to. Right. Well, it's just like a 50,000 water, you know, and, and oh, sure. just a great, a big powerful signal and, and just sort of, it was a heritage station. It'd been on the air forever. And I, I was 
producing and working with some of the, like just the giants in talk radio, I was very fortunate. I got in sort of at the tail end when AM radio still mattered and still counted for something before podcasts and before, uh, well, a lot of different things that have sort of eroded the, the, uh, the market. But, uh, so I learned from some of the greats and then one day the program director asked me if I wanted my own show. He was great at trying to develop talent from within. So, if he saw someone he thought could, you know, work on air. So he gave me my own show on Sunday nights and it, it started off just kind of, a how would I describe it? I tried to, I tried to, to do a kind of a comedy show and I failed miserably because comedy is the hardest thing there is, you know, and I, it's hard making people laugh. It is, it yeah. is. And, uh, so it just, I was kind of looking for something to grab onto and I remembered as a kid, always uh, enjoyed Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of program. And of course, Art Bell was a, was a huge influence at that time as well. And we didn't really have much of anything like that in Canada at, the, at that time. This is uh, late 90s, other than Art Bell. So I decided, well, let's try that. And it took off. It did very well. In fact, uh, I was beating in, in that market in Toronto, which is like the fifth largest market in North America. I was beating coast to coast in repeats at that time, they were, the station would be repeating the, the previous day's show, uh, from about nine until 1 AM. And I was, so I was up going up against coast to coast that was at another station and I was beating coast to coast on the, on the Sunday show. So that's basically how I got into it. I think the first show I did was on the Loch Ness monster and I got a tremendous response. And then from there, of course, nine 11, uh, and you know, once you go down that rabbit hole, there's no going back. I later in my career, I tried to do kind of a straight ahead current affairs talk show and I, my heart just wasn't in it. Well, that, that's all. I mean, that's how Art Bell started too. I mean, coast to coast AM started as a current affairs talk show. Yes. Very political. And then it like all of a sudden it turned around into the, uh, the weird wonderland that we all enjoyed in the nineties. So, you know, thoroughly, right, uh, right. it was like are you, for the first time in your life, you're like, there's not just a few weirdos like me. <laughs> there's a million <laughs> there's so many weirdos um hey i i wanted well, to ask um you know so so one of one of um you know my favorites um on coast to coast was um our gary patterson who was a big front you know a friend of yours great friend of yours yes. and um kind of it seems like maybe one of the inspirations for the rock and roll twilight zone could we talk a little bit about more that? than a oh yes absolutely we just i just i raised a glass to gary a few days ago because i marked the first anniversary of his his passing uh gary and i met on the radio it's funny you know you probably know this there's so many people you know but only this this discarnate voice coming through the ether and you don't really know them in the flesh face to face. So Gary and I had that kind of relationship. He was on my radio program for years before we finally met. Uh, so we were great friends over the radio. And then on my TV show, I went down to Nashville to do an episode and we finally, we met. And then he came up to Toronto, uh, to do uh, a stage show with George Norrie. So we met, we, you know, we hung out again and then, um, I brought him up to Toronto to do a, a live event uh, just about six months before he died in October of 2016. And we had uh, always wanted to work together. So we came up with this idea. We were, we were going to sort of 
you know, meld our two worlds of the paranormal conspiracy with with his great love and passion, rock and roll. And we set out to to develop a, a radio program for terrestrial radio. And it was originally called Spirit of Rock Radio. And we did a demo and we created this logo and and uh, we put a lot of work into it about two years talking on the phone, Skype twice a week, emails constantly. And we were getting close. We had a, a meeting with a station in Knoxville uh, that, that originally was supposed to be uh, the Monday of Memorial Day weekend of last year. And so what happened was Gary called me uh, the Wednesday going into the Memorial Day weekend and said, okay, we're all set for Monday. And then I seem to recall him calling me on the Friday. I was certain we talked on the Friday. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is going somewhere. Believe me. So we, right. I, I could have swore up and down. We talked on the Friday. He called me and, and he called me to say, because I don't know where my head is. Monday is Memorial Day. So the meeting is now, we're going to have to reschedule. We're not doing the meeting on Monday. I said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And of course, he was living down in Knoxville. He had arranged for this meeting. We were going to do and, it, right, and because you're in because you're in Canada, I mean, you might know, you might see that it's Memorial Day or whatever, but it's a different thing with like people on the day off and everything. So, right. So, of course, you're like, well, oh, oh, you guys have a holiday. All right. Well, we have Boxing Day, I guess. Go ahead. Exactly. So, so there was going to be no meeting on the Monday, and we were very excited about this. Finally, we were going to launch this show. They were going, they wanted to take the show, and. um then he said a couple of things to me that were kind of strange in retrospect. He said, you know, Richard, you're a really cool dad. And I thought, oh, all right. I, I had mentioned to him earlier that I had taken my twin boys to see a Zombies concert. Not Rob Zombie, but the original Zombies. They were touring <laughs> the 50th, 50th anniversary of Odyssey and Oracle. So we went to the, the, um, this is the Danforth Music Hall and, and um, we watched the, the So he, you're a really cool dad. Well, okay, that's kind of interesting. Then he said to me... Uh, you know, Richard, we're a really big deal. <laughs> I thought, oh, well. I, and I, I'm thinking, okay, he's saying that he's trying to build us up because we have this meeting coming up. You know, we're going to launch the radio show. And then I asked him, all right, before we said goodbye, have a great Memorial Day weekend. I said, are you having a barbecue? And he said in a very matter-of-fact way, and Gary was very laid back, but he said, there will be no barbecue. He was very emphatic. There will be no barbecue. I thought, oh, okay, did I touch a nerve? What's going on there? So, wake up the next morning, I go out, my morning ritual, go have a coffee on the front porch, and Dave Schrader at Coast to Coast sends me a Facebook message saying, Richard, I thought you'd like to know Gary died last night. And I said, or I texted back or messaged back, that's ridiculous, I just spoke to him. So, I immediately called Gary on his cell phone, of course, no answer. And uh, then, lo and behold, I find out it's true. I, but I, so I walk up up the stairs to the second floor of our house, and I, my wife is just getting out of bed and getting ready. And I say, you won't believe Gary's dead. And she said, without me prompting her, you just talked to him last night. Now, Gary died at about 6 o'clock. And I re this was late when I, when I talked to him. I thought it was about 9 o'clock. And you guys are both on Eastern time. Uh, he might be central in oh, actually, Knoxville. Actually, you're right. Tennessee's, Tennessee's, Tennessee's doesn't matter even if it right. was, even if it's an hour behind. It's still eight o'clock, and I'm talking. He's supposed to, he was dead. They found him with his eyes open, cold, six o'clock at night. 
And I'm wait a minute, I'm misremembering this. I'm misremembering this. And uh, my wife, Jackie, said, well, you were talking to somebody, I know, because I saw you walk through the kitchen with the phone to your ear, and you had a very distant look on your face. And I, I assumed it was Gary because you two are t- talking all the time. And so then what I did, you know, you, on your on your cell phone, you've got that recent thing where you can check your recent calls, incoming and outcoming, mm-hmm. incoming and outgoing, rather. I had no calls on the Friday. Not only did no one call me, I didn't call anybody. No one loved me that Friday. I didn't hear from, no one talked to me. There was nothing. And yet my wife remembered me with the phone to my ear. I remember distinctly talking to Gary, although caveat, I could be misremembering it. Uh, so there you go. Did I get a telephone call from the the other side? Uh, who knows? So yeah, that, that's a very long story, but Gary and I were to be co-hosting this show when he died. Uh, I decided after I went down to, Oh, I went down to the funeral. His, his brother, Michael is in front of the casket. And I went up to Michael to send my condolences. And I said, Michael, um, after we talked for a while, I got to ask you about something. One of the last things Gary said to me was there will be no barbecue. What, what, what was that all about? And he, he looked at me, very puzzled look on his face. He said, that's strange. The afternoon before he died, he was out racing around and he spent $500 on a new barbecue. And he was putting it together on the back porch with my son, his nephew. So he called me, what, from the other side to tell me, no, there's not going to be a barbecue. I bought a barbecue, but I'm gone. There's no barbecue. All that wasted money. Hmm. <laughs> even even when you're dead, you're still like, oh, that's really? right. Really, I could have like, can somebody return the barbecue? <laughs> so yeah, there there is my uh, my one of my very few paranormal encounters. Unless again, I'm misremembering the whole thing. Well, did you have some kind of? I mean. When you when you came into this whole thing, you said like, "Well, In Search of" was a fun show, and and obviously you must have an affinity for this kind of stuff to, to get into it, even if it wasn't your, you know, you didn't you didn't pick it, you picked it to be like, "Hey, let's fill a niche, let's make some magic happen." Um, did you have anything that happened in your life before then, like when you were growing up, that made you think like, "Okay," because you know how most people just go through and they're like, "I." I, nothing's ever happened to me. I would even say up to me, and for a long time in my life, nothing ever happened to me. And Allison, you're the, you know. Yeah. It, oh, yeah. I used to say that all the time. Not anymore, though, I'm happy to say. All right. right. So was there something that happened to you, anything that happened to you early on when you were a kid or that you're just like, oh, yeah, my, you know, my mom believed in ghosts or my aunt was a psychic. And, and sometimes people would just throw that out sometimes. So I was just wondering if anything like that was happening to you. You know, there was, but I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it at the time when I decided to do that to do that show. Like I just, like I said, I kind of fell into it and I had kind of this mercenary attitude. What's going to work, even though I was interested in it. But, you know, there's an interesting phenomenon when, when, uh, when you talk to people that have seen UFOs and if they see them with somebody else, they don't talk to each other about it. Have you come across that? I, I hear about this time and time again, they, people will see a UFO together, but they don't even, they don't, they never talk about it again. I don't know what that's all about, but I didn't think about uh, what had happened to me in earlier days until um, after I started, I was well into doing this show. And then I started thinking back and it's like, oh yeah, yeah. The more I thought of it, the more, 
I, I remembered when my father died. In what was the name? What oh. was the name of your show, though? Real quick, did you have a special name? Was it like the uh, the Dark Side with Richard Serrett? You know, anything well, like that? Or n- no, was it was it was called the Night Side, but it was a it was kind of the it was that was what the Late Show at CFRB was called. And if I, when I left, somebody else it was the Night Side with Jeremy McGillicuddy or whatever. It didn't matter. That was the name of the show. Uh, and then you just insert host's name here. It was called the night side. I think that slot is still called the night side at CFRB 1010. Um, so in 1986 on new year's Eve, my father passed away and, uh, I was home on winter break or Christmas break from university when he passed away. And a couple nights after he died and, uh, it was the night of the funeral. So we'd buried him. We came home and, I was given us, uh, all the, all family members were given just a, uh, like a half a sedative, a half a pill, of a sedative standard procedure, you know, help you sleep, help you deal with the anxiety. So I always offer that up as, again, as a caveat, you know, I'm a skeptic. So I want to throw that out there. I was, I, I was on a medication. I was on medication, but slight dosage. So the last thing I remember was because my, my brother-in-law and the whole family had gathered over at my mother's house and I had a basement, a, a bedroom in the basement. I fell asleep to the sound of my family in the rec room adjoining my bedroom watching Saturday Night Live. And then I woke up and it was dead silent. So I realized, oh, it's late. Everyone's gone home. It's just me and my mom in the house now. And this is how I, I know I'm not dreaming. I roll over to see what time it is. Uh, and I'm looking for my clock radio and it's not there. And then I realize, oh yeah, it's at the dorm back at university. I'm, I'm home. It's Christmas break. You know, when you're dreaming, things aren't quite the way they're supposed to be. If I was dreaming, the clock probably would have been there. So clock's right, not the clock there. would have been there and you'd looked at it twice and have different times each time. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. That's right. So I know I, now I figure, okay, I'm not dreaming and the hairs in the back of my neck are standing up yet. I'm not frightened. I look into the doorway and there's a, um, a figure coming through the doorway in the dark, it's pitch black yet. I can still make it out because I had this sweatshirt with a university of Victoria insignia. I didn't go there, but I, for whatever reason I had happened to have this switch sweatshirt and the, and the, the decal on it kind of glowed in the dark and I could make that out. And I thought, who's that coming through the door and why are they wearing my sweatshirt? And then I figured, okay, the only other person in the house is my mother why is she wearing my sweatshirt? So I'm, I'm kind of, you know, reaching out with my hands and kind of like trying to, to, to brush the fog away or whatever. And then I'm rubbing my eyes and I'm calling out and she's not responding. And then I closed my eyes and I looked and it was gone. And then I put my head back down. I opened my eyes and now it's hovering above me with its head directly above my head. And I'm looking into this face and it's me i'm seeing my doppelganger and not for a moment was i ever frightened i was just totally confused and again i went i'm, I'm thinking okay what is this is this an, uh, some sort of an illusion or whatever and i'm waving my hands and then like it got sucked into the corner of a room it just it just shrank to like the size of a pm and went into the corner of the room and was gone and that was wow, it. that's pretty dramatic. Yeah, so that heavy. yeah, that was my first real paranormal encounter. Uh, but never frightened for a moment, just confused. 
and yeah, still really like not Luke, sure. That's like Luke taking on Darth Vader in the cave on Dagobah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he cuts off the head and it's like, oh, it's him. It's him. <laughs> so, yeah, but that even though that happened to me, that didn't really propel me into this. Like I said, I never, after a while, I didn't even think about it. it I just kind of filed it away. I don't know. Maybe that's normal biasy. We do that. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it is because you know when weird stuff starts happening, I think it's hard for people to process, and and I know that's happened to me where, you know, you just forget about things for a really long time, and then you know until something reminds you, and you're like, oh wait a second, that was a really extraordinary experience yeah. that I yeah. just conveniently forgot about. So I want to get back to. Um, yeah, our Gary Patterson, because he he had some experiences um, on the paranormal side as well, and which lead leads us into talking about some topics uh, from your show. Um, so, I mean, he he uh, did so many books on the dark side of rock and roll, and you know the mysteries of rock and roll, and uh, strange deaths, and uh, the paranormal. And uh, you know, one one of the uh, people that that you recently did a show on um, was uh, Robert Johnson. You know, one of my favorite musicians. Yes. And um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Robert Johnson and then some of the stories that uh, uh, R. Gary Patterson had, including his his own uh, kind of strange uh, encounters after uh, he headed to the crossroads. Right. So the um, Mississippi Delta in the 1920s and 30s, as a young African-American male, you're options were somewhat restricted. I mean, the son of a sharecropper, which was a brutal life, uh, you know, having to, to buy your implements and everything. It was like a bit like, you know, being a coal miner in that area. You bought everything from the company store at highly elevated prices and you probably went into debt. And then it's like, you know, the, one of those cash for checks, cash for money places where you pay 30% and just, you never climb out of that. So pretty much. Yeah. So, uh, a little bit of a step up from slavery, but not much. So that's your 40 acres and a mule. Yeah. So what are your options? And, and much as you know, young, young kids growing up under hard circumstances might look at um, a a career in professional sports as a ticket out uh, boxing or um, you know, today, you know, I'm going to become a rock and roll star. The option was, become a, a, a blues man, a, a blues guitarist. And, and so he started hanging around legends down there like Sun House, who found him to be a bit of an annoyance, quite frankly, because he couldn't play a lick, according to legend. Uh, he wanted desperately to, to, to learn, and they indulged him for a while. And then after a while, he just became a little too much. And they, even though he persisted and they, they tried to discourage him with probably some gentle ribbing. Uh, no, no doubt the ribbing got less and less gentle. And finally, they just kind of kicked him out. And then he disappeared, depending on the version of story, anywhere from a few weeks uh, up until about a year. One of the legends was that he was looking for his his birth father. He was raised by a stepfather. He was looking for his birth father. And um, anyway, came back unannounced. And one day, Sunhouse and his crew were playing in a juke joint, and they were taking a smoke break out in the parking lot. And while they were out there, they heard this this incredible sound coming from 
inside. So in they went. And they're up on the stage with his back turned to the audience. Is this virtuoso on the slide guitar? I mean, he's just. He has people mesmerized. I mean, this thing is like this guitar is wailing like a tortured soul, you know. And when he turns around, Robert Johnson had a cataract in one eye. So when the when the spotlight caught it, it had this strange white glow to it, which gave him this sort of ethereal, ghostly appearance, which just added to the mystique. And it's Robert Johnson. And Sunhouse is saying, my God, how is this possible? This punk couldn't play to save his life. And now he's out playing us all in, a, in six months or a year. Not, not possible. Is there even 10,000 hours in that amount of time? That's right. You got to have the 10,000 hours. That's it. Precisely. So, uh, now, Robert Johnson never floated the legend. I believe it was Sunhouse who said, well, there's only one option. He must have gone to the crossroads and, and uh, uh, met old Scratch, as they called the devil. But Robert Johnson never denied it. I'm sure... He had a bit of a, the marketing genius in him and recognized that, well, you know, I'm not, if they want to believe that, fine. Uh, so that, that, that is the legend, that if you wanted a special talent or a special gift, you wanted to, to strike the deal, you would go to the crossroads on a moonless night. And in this case, you would, turn, you would meet this man all dressed in black, not Johnny Cash. You would turn your back, you would hand your guitar over your left shoulder. Old Scratch would take the guitar, perform his special tuning, hand it back, and the deal was struck. And that's supposedly how it went down. Now, the, the idea of the crossroads, this, this goes back, like, almost to the Roman Empire, days of the Roman Empire in Europe, at the crossroads, uh, or in medieval times. You would, you would bury some crossroads, like a highway robber or someone, you know, this is, it's not sanctified ground like a cemetery you put someone in there who doesn't belong in a cemetery you bury them there you hang them there and then you bury them there they used to put suicides at the cross that's right suicides as well so supposedly he made this deal and uh, but he did say that he he learned to play he would practice in cemeteries at night so as to be alone and not to disturb anybody so whether or not that's true or not but it's funny that uh, Robert Johnson is sort of the founding member of the 27 Club because he was 27 and he was performing in these juke joints. I mean, living the dream. Uh, you know, for a, a bluesman, it was you'd go from the juke joint to the creep house. That was kind of a, board, a bordello and uh, lived that life. So he was always warned when he was performing in juke joints, never accept and drink from an open bottle of whiskey. Just don't do it. It's not safe. And he had a reputation with the ladies. He was a um, a player, as they say. And one night he he took a drink from an open bottle of whiskey that was offered to him. And he spent the next two nights on his knees in agony. It was said howling uh, like a wolf uh, and slowly poisoned to death uh, from probably strychnine. 
and that's one of the legends as to how uh, how he he passed away was that uh, you know was that the uh, the um, the debt being you know called and uh, paying for his 27 years of well he didn't have 27 years of fame but he died in, at the age of 27 so founding member of the 27 club uh, perhaps could, could be considered the grandfather of rock and roll the first rock star if you will oh yeah i mean think about the bands that covered him i mean obviously Cream covers Crossroads, and that, that song inspires the movie yes. with Ralph Macchio, Steve Vai playing the solo as the devil's, <laughs> the, the devil's guitar player at the end of the movie. That's right. You know? Leonard Skinner, uh, they never recorded it, but they would perform it live. And of course, great tragedy there. Um, also, um, the Allman Brothers. Again, I don't think they ever recorded yeah. it, but they certainly performed it. And we know what happened uh, to... Uh, to um, Dwayne and can't remember the other. His name escapes me I now. Who he died at the exact right same spot, basically as Dwayne, in the exact same manner, crashed his motorcycle, yeah. and um, like a year to the day, practically. So yeah, that's now. You wanted me to tell you about Gary's adventure, his pilgrimage down to the crossroads. You you had yeah, him on the show. Yeah. Did he tell you so, the story? You've heard so, it. No, we we we've never had we've never had Gary. Oh. On the show. We we talked about him like our our second episode, othersidepodcast.com slash two is where you can find it. We have a whole episode of making a deal with the devil. We even have a our song that week is Old Scratch Blues, where it starts out as Rob Robert Johnson ends up as Easy Top kind of oh, thing. Oh wow! So we've we've discussed it, but we never had a chance to talk to Gary while he was still with us. No. So that's why we're excited to kind of revisit that a little bit. With uh, you, talking yeah. Because uh, you know, I was a great fan of his. Uh, you know, every time he was on. Uh, coast to coast and uh yeah he he had you know these great stories and i used to actually have a jar of crossroads dirt it i i did drop it and it broke oh, <laughs> um, yes. it, but i did when my when a friend of mine went down to the crossroads i'm like could you get me some dirt and put it in a jar <laughs> mm-hmm. um, wow yeah, so so Gary wanted to collect himself some dirt because you can use that in some mojo workings, I understand. Uh, but yeah, so um, and there's also a cemetery involved. You can also use cemetery uh, dirt for um, working. So that's kind of like double mojo. <laughs> right. Well, I, yeah, I don't mess with any of that, and I can't tell the story as well as Gary because it happened to him, obviously. Uh, and I don't have that wonderful Tennessee drawl. Uh, yeah. So. He didn't go down there actually with the intention of getting the dirt, but I, the, the, they just went down, uh, kind of a pilgrimage, obviously, and he was traveling with some of his fraternity brothers from the University of Tennessee. That was the thing about Gary. I mean, he kept in touch with his his fraternity brothers. They were very close, so they're down there, and one of the fraternity brothers has comes up with this idea that they'll they'll collect some dirt from the crossroads, obviously from the shoulder, because uh, it's old Highway Forty Eight, and is it. 67 or 63 that goes through there that intersect anyway they're paved long ago so they were going to get some dirt from the side of the road and uh there's a cemetery adjacent and one of the fraternity brothers wives wanders over to the cemetery and they go following over to see what she's doing and she's got this big branch that she's in her hand and she's trying to knock this snake this big black snake that has coiled itself and is sitting on top of a tombstone. And this is apparently was in the fall, which, you know, it's not a time when your snakes 
or seem to come out a lot. It was very strange that this black snake on a tombstone at the crossroads. I mean, talk about an omen. And there she is trying to bash it with a stick. And, uh, you know, Gary gently uh, convinces her that that's probably not a good idea. So the snake eventually slithers away. So that was kind of the first kind of odd thing. Anyway, they gather up the dirt and then they, they head on back up to, uh, to Knoxville. And within moments or minute, minutes of arriving home, Gary gets home, the phone rings. And one of his fraternity brothers, a relative, tells him that his, his friend has just had a heart attack. As gets home and has a heart attack and he's taken to the hospital. Luckily, not nothing too, too serious. He survives within a couple of hours. The phone rings again. And another member of that um, group that went down to, to Clarksdale has suffered an aneurysm. And he also survives. Uh, and then. Whether it's the, the wife of another fraternity brother or maybe it was a f- another female friend that had gone down calls and said, I don't know what's going on, but my security alarm keeps going off. And all the next day it kept going off. She'd be at work and she'd get called from the security company. She'd have to go home and they didn't know what was going on. And um, somebody suggested to her that it was, had something to do with the dirt and all these other misfortunes had to do with this dirt from the crossroads. So she decides she's going to take her little vial of dirt and throw it into the river, whatever river is close by in Knoxville. And within 48 hours, the river floods. Oh, wow. So the only, one of the only people not affected by all of this was Gary. And he's like, uh, sucks to be you guys. I got the sweet dirt. I knew I should. <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like, He's like, I saw the hoof print, and I immediately dug that one up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The cloven-hooved disciple of Beelzebub, yes. Uh, actually, no, now that I remember it, Gary had left his dirt in somebody else's car. He did, That's it. He didn't have the dirt. So now it stands to reason why he was unaffected. So, right, and you know, he left it with the woman he had come with. That's um, right. Which, which was the woman who was experiencing all those mysterious alarms until he was like, you know what? It's going to be okay. Just put the dirt in the river. That's and it. We'll river sweep it away. And, and that's what took care of those mysterious alarms. That's right. Now, the last, Gary and I talked all the time on the phone, but the last show he did on my radio show, we were promoting his, he was, I brought him up to Toronto in October of 2016. So in early October, I had him on. And we were, he had the dirt, he had the dirt in a vial on one side of his computer and he had a, he had a cross that was actually blessed by the Pope. He kept that on the other side. I guess they kind of equaled each other out. (laughs) So we're about to go on the air and my computer goes haywire. It just like someone pulled the plug out of the, out of the wall. This is the studio computer. It goes nuts. And so I'm having to ad lib and that's kind of, you know, always a struggle for me because I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed sometimes. So I'm having to, you know, work without a net here. And then, so I get Gary on the phone. Are you there, Gary? Are you there? And then he can't hear me, but I can hear him. And then he can hear me, but I can't hear him. And then he drops off the line. And so then I got a tap dance for three minutes while my technical oh, producer gets him back on the phone. Yeah. And then get this. And I, I didn't, didn't remember this until I went back and listened to this recording because I, I used, recycled it, this interview with Gary on a, on an episode of the rock and roll twilight zone. 
Gary says to me when I get him back on, I said, Gary, where were you? What happened? He goes, you put me in a box. You put me in a box. And he kept saying that I'm in a box. I'm in a box. You put me in a box. Who, Who says that? And then I think, you know, when at the last time I saw him, he was in a box. And uh, fell. Yeah. Ah. But every time I talk about the crossroads, I had Matt Swain. Do you know Matt? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've had Matt on a couple of times. He has uh, Haunted Rock and Roll, uh, and he just released the second one, too. With a dedication to Gary. Uh, in fact, I've got the, uh, he sent me a copy, and I have to send it to Gary's brother. Um, I, I was meant to go to the post office today. So um, Matt was on Coast to Coast with me. And we had some audio trouble just when we started to, we covered a lot of ground, but just when we started to talk about the crossroads, we had some audio trouble. We we got actually, no, we got knocked off the air, which has never happened to be on coast to coast, got knocked off the air for about five minutes. And then before that, I had him on the podcast. I was recording with him the, uh, the crossroads episode, and I was using bits of Gary's interview as well in that episode. So I have Matt on there. We did the interview. Everything went fine. I went back to listen to it and it was just crackling the whole way through, which never happened. So I had to call him back. We had to do the interview the next day. So every time I talk about the crossroads and let's hope fingers crossed, nothing happens right now. Some, I get knocked off the air or something happens. I I should have put that in the notes. Keep it yes. on the outline if you want to avoid tech trouble. You, you make me want to have some more crossroads dirt. I'm sorry that I don't have it anymore. But if you'd like to get your own crossroads dirt, you can go down to Clarksdale, Mississippi. It's the, at the corner of Highway 322 and North State Street and DeSoto Avenue. That's Old Highway 61 and Old Highway 49. And they have, 49, they yeah. have it marked with uh, two cross guitars. So yeah, I'm gonna have to head down there. Yeah. But you know, certainly take the a last lot train. of the, <laughs> yeah, take the last train to Clarksville. Uh, no, it's Clarksdale. I don't it's know. Clarksville. I know. I blew. I blew it. Uh, but I, uh, the joke. The joke Michael Nesmith will forgive you. Far away. Um, <laughs> or he'll he'll actually he'll use whiteout to make sure that joke never touche. happened. Touche. Very witty, <laughs> wild. Very witty. Um, so, so on the rock and roll tri- Twilight Zone, there's lots of stories like this, but um, and and curses too, you know. So it sounds like you know the crossroads and you know the the twenty seven club. I mean, there's there's a lot of people who have been cursed by uh, their involvement with the occult and rock and roll, and of course there's Led Zeppelin, and and uh, they have a, a curse surrounding them. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, it it starts with Jimmy Page's fascination with the occult and magic and a very interesting gentleman by the name of Aleister Crowley. Holy uh, moly. The, the, <laughs> holy yeah. moly Crowley. We um, talk about a whole heck of a lot. We call him Uncle yeah. Al on the show. Uncle Al. Uncle Al. <laughs> you're, wow. All right. Uh, so um, Crowley buys this house on, uh, on Loch Ness called Boleskine house, uh, which apparently is very haunted. He, he was looking for some very, some very secluded place to perform this, uh, ritual where you would summon demons and then bind them. Uh, not that, you know, that he, I'm not, he, he wasn't a, a Satanist or a devil worshiper, but this is part of the, the occultic practices to, that you have to confront these demons and then bind them. 
Yeah, uh, ceremonial magic. In ceremonial yes. magic, you you uh, you get these demons, and then you you make them do your will. So so they're not very happy about being bound and and having to you know be your lap dogs. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's right. The devil is saying, "I'm I'll do it, but I'm doing it under duress." But obviously, it was. I mean, he bound the demons to make Robert Plant sing like that, to make John Bonham hit the drums like that, to make John Paul Jones. Not only can the guy play bass like a monster, he's doing the keyboards and everything. That's right. Like, you know, so obviously he had the demon mojo working. Well, what happened uh, apparently to make that was, happen. What happened apparently was that Crowley was in the midst of this, and this is a long, drawn out, takes like weeks and weeks, and you have to fast and change the linen on your bed and all of this, you know, stuff. It's very involved. And he was twenty five. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He was 25. He was impetuous and he was probably this easily distracted, easily bored. Uh, so he gets called away during the midst of this to Paris and didn't properly bind the demons. So when he comes back, the place is just, you know, all these spirits and the place is just going crazy. And uh, the one of the gentlemen... A lot of weird things happened to him while he was at Bulliskin House. The, the 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 person that was kind of the you know the manager running the place, who lived on the estate with his family, had, had never touched a drink, never tr- touched a drop of drink in his entire life. All of a sudden, he starts drinking like a fish, and he one night he goes crazy and he tries to kill his wife and his children. Uh, there's another instance of another person who worked on uh, the estate, and his. Uh, daughter tragically uh, collapses at her school desk and dies. And oh, within days, the young, the young baby boy on the, on the mother's lap just dies suddenly. Uh, the, the village butcher. Yeah, where... this is a crazy one. Get ready for this one. Cause I... <laughs> I thought the kid's deaths were enough for me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Crowley sends him a note. I don't know whether he's saying I need, two pounds of veal and whatever, but I don't know what the contents of the note were. He sends the note to the butcher and within moments of the butcher reading the note from Alistair Crowley, he manages to take a cleaver and chop his hand off. So oops. Yeah. Oops. Uh, so there's a, there's all that happening. And then at a certain point, Crowley, uh, sells the place and it sits idle uh, for for decades and is an incredible state of disrepair until uh, Jimmy Page sees that it's on the market and and um, decides to buy it because he was a, a huge collector. He was he's almost obsessed with Crowley. He had a he hired a woman whose 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 sole job was to go around finding Crowley artifacts and you know grimoires that had been owned by Crowley and ceremonial robes and anything anything. Oh man, old. I miss my calling. Who knew yeah, there exactly. could like You could be the Crowley concierge. <laughs> so, Boleskine House, he has to have it. He buys it. He hires a, um, a childhood chum uh, to move in and, and run the place. Because, by all accounts, Paige is very rarely there. Um, at this point, they are sort of, Led Zeppelin are kind of in the height of their success. Uh, but at a certain point, and we don't know where this meeting took place, it could have been at Boleskine. It would make sense that that uh, given 
Page's fascination with with magic, and he admitted that he used it in his in his life. It would make sense that he would have called this meeting at Boleskine House. Um, that uh, he he makes this pact with the other members of the band uh, that they're going to partake in this ritual and they're going to even climb to greater success and greater notoriety. And uh, are they willing? And probably just to assuage their uh, their friend, they go along with it. At least three of them, three of the or two of the three, go along with it. The one holdout is John Paul Jones, who wants nothing uh, to do with it. And uh, he says, no, I'm out. However, Robert Plant... And Bonzo's probably like, is there a six-pack? I'll, I'll show up. <laughs> that's, it. that's it. So they, they partake in this ritual, according to the legend, and uh, everything seems to be fine and dandy. Uh, then, of course, a series of tragedies, beginning with Robert Plant. He's, he's involved in a couple of fairly minor vehicle mishaps, but then... While he's working under his car, it falls on him. Uh, he's laid up for several weeks. Uh, then, while on vacation in Greece, uh, now I can imagine where he is. I've been and the, the the roads; they're, they're like hairpin turns going on, on Greece. Anyway, they they they're in a terrible accident. I think the car goes off the cliff. Uh, one of Plant's children is hurt. His wife is injured, and he is badly hurt. Um, and I think the only person in the vehicle that wasn't hurt, it was Jimmy Page's daughter was also in the car at the time. She walks away virtually unscathed. So was Mr. Crowley looking over her shoulder? I don't know, but plant again is laid up for weeks. I just keep picturing the, the car going off the cliff and you just hear this like, ah, like all the way down. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Time plus tragedy equals comedy. So yeah, we're forty years on. We're fine. exactly. Uh, so I think in the following tour, he's he's actually having to perform like from a wheelchair or a, or he's in a seated position or something. Yeah, he's pretty messed up. And then there's a in anticipation of the tour, they send their equipment over to North America and it gets lost or misplaced, and so they can't practice and and they can't record. Uh, a number of other mishaps, people sort of associated with the band, sound engineers, staff photographers end up dying. Um, of course, John Bonham uh, dies um, just before they, well, before Bonham's death, they were in Los Angeles and they got into a major alter- altercation with the promoter, Billy Graham and one of his members and John Bonham and someone who traveled with him that was basically kind of a, an enforcer. He was a bit of a thug from Northern England. They end up just throttling this Billy Graham employee, almost kill him. And the next day the police come, they're arrested, charged. They got, they were very lucky. They could have done some serious, serious time. Um, they escape that, but then they move on to New Orleans. And while there. Robert Plant receives word that his son is very, very ill and, of course, sadly later dies. Uh, Robert yeah, Plant. Of a, stomach, of a stomach virus. Yes, of a stomach virus. That's so yeah. weird. That, that, that can, and it was, I mean, he was five years old, the kid. So it's just very, right. it's just very unusual. Indeed. 
so he retires to the Midlands, and as far as he concern, he's concerned, that's it. That's the end of the band. He, he's not interested anymore, understandably. How do you recover from something like that? Uh, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, I don't know if it's a Northern England thing or what. They just they didn't even show up for the funeral. Uh, John Bonham was really the only one that kind of reached out to him and was a great comfort to Robert Plant. So Robert Plant, who had always been enamored with Jimmy Page, I mean, absolutely loved the guy. I mean, that was the end of it. So really, (laughs) uh, things kind of came undone in a hurry for that band, you know, uh, in a major way. So is that tied to this this magic ritual performed at Bulliskin House where the, the demons, you know, many years earlier had not been properly bound. Who knows? Or more than likely, again, as a skeptic, uh, you know, the life of a rock and roller, that's that's more dangerous than one of these high iron workers. I mean, the you've got drugs and alcohol and, and, and uh, callow youth. Uh, and just all combining for the perfect storm. It's just like they're they're just on a one-way track headed for tragedy from the moment they pick up the guitar. Well, what I read about um, was that the, the biggest thing that has affected the life of musicians uh, as far as the average age of death is the development of Narcan. And so when you go back to the late 60s and early 70s, when we talk about everybody ODing, mm-hmm. um, it's because everybody's doing intravenous heroin and intravenous heroin, you stick it in. If it's too, if you have too much, you're dead. Right, right. That's it. And the development of something where you know you can give people something, you can inject them with something that can counteract the heroin before it kills them is the biggest change. So I think there was a, um, I think it was a study done by like the the British Department of, uh, you know, whatever their drugs department was. Right. And they were saying that you know what what was killing everybody back in the day was intravenous heroin and and now what's killing him is depression interesting you know if we think about the rock stars that have died in just the past couple of years chris cornell uh the guy from lincoln park yes anyone else well i mean she partied herself to death and yeah but just that it seems like there's a different uh it's a, it's a different strain of something that these people have such high wonderful incredible lives and so much talent that it blows our minds that there's something underneath that even though you think, like I think a guy like Chris Cornell, I grew up listening to Soundgarden and I'm like, he's got the greatest voice of the entire alternative movement. Like, no, I mean, just singing, it's just a brilliant singer. And you think, how, how does that guy finish a night, a show, and then it's depressed? Yeah. The depression it is a powerful demon. Right. Uh, you know, something I, w- I was wondering though, uh, Richard, so you've done a bunch of these shows now. And you talked about everything from was Elvis murdered? You talked about, you know, you talked about the 27 Club. You talked about, you know, Jim Morrison, could he have faked his death? You talked, was Jimi Hendrix a victim of MK Ultra? You know, you go into all this stuff. What's something, and that you, you have a, you, you understand, you understand the history of rock and roll. What's something that surprised you that a topic came up and you're like, you know what? I never even thought of that before. Is you know, I was wondering, like, what surprised you? Were like, we have to talk about this because I don't even know anything about it. Well, I'd, I'd have to say the most recent. I did a two-part series on Elvis Presley, and back to my, you know, my. I did a TV show for four seasons called The Conspiracy Show, and we did an episode on Elvis and whether he faked his death, and you know, that's become sort of a 
the the joke, the Elvis sightings, uh, flipping burgers in Kalamazoo, and doing <laughs> Elvis impressions is kind of replaced wearing lampshades at parties. And it's an it's unfortunate because this incredible, I mean, this guy's. He strode the 20th century like a colossus, his influence. No, he didn't write songs, but one of the greatest interpreters of music ever. Uh, and the charisma and the and the generosity, uh, which is overlooked, just an incredibly generous person. And and what it saddens me to think that it has all been, dis, it's descended into a big joke. So yeah. the idea that, you know, there were still people and for a while, I have to include myself. I, I was open-minded to the fact that maybe, oh, maybe he did fake his death. And but then, when you really understand what a what a miserable existence he had uh, under the thumb of Colonel Tom Parker, this guy he w- literally worked him to death. And all around Elvis, he was just surrounded by backbiters and traitors. Even his family, other than Vernon, there was no one he could trust. And Vernon was his father. His Vernon was his father, who 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 took care of his money and and really did have Elvis's best interest at heart. Um, and so it was really sad. You know, the only place Elvis could go to to be at peace and to read, which he was a voracious reader. This he had an incredible IQ. Uh, the only place he could go and be be by himself and be at peace was his bathroom which of course is where they found him. But uh, I hadn't realized the extent of what a, what a sad life he had in, 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 for 20 years under Colonel Tom Parker's thumb and what a, what a horrible sight, so, um, sociopath Colonel Parker was. I, re- I didn't realize that he had murdered somebody in the Netherlands. Oh, es- wow. Es- I had never heard that. His name was yeah. obviously he wasn't Tom Parker, nor was he a colonel. He came to the United States. He got somehow he got into the army. He was an illegal got into the army, took the name of his commanding officer, whose name was Tom Parker, just added the colonel because it made him sound important. And, and Southern, too. Like, that's that, that whole, you know, that, that Southern uh, in the U.S. Like the, um, the cur- that's right. Everyone's a colonel. Now, now the Confederacy does not have as much cachet as it had in prior things, even in the mid, mid-19th century. Right. But saying Colonel Tom Parker was something like, Oh, well, maybe this is someone we should respect. Right. Yeah. Put on a bolo tie and a cigar and uh, you name your, your colonel and that's it. They, you know, uh, but he was just so manipulative and, and, um, so he had Elvis on a 50, 50 cut Elvis had to give up 50% of his earnings to Tom Parker plus pay Tom Parker's, uh, expenses plus Here's the big thing. Colonel Tom Parker was uh, a huge gambling addict. He had a problem at the gambling table, so he was so indebted to the mob. And um, so what happened is when Elvis was run into the ground because he had him performing constantly, there was no rest for this guy. And there was one time when they were performing in Detroit and Larry Geller, kind of a, it was his hairdresser and spiritual advisor, found Elvis unconscious. He was so worn out. He was unconscious. Colonel Tom Parker came in and basically they made Dr. Nicopolis stick Elvis's head in a bucket of ice water to revive him. He said, all that matters is that man goes out on stage. So he was just grinding him into the ground because if Elvis didn't perform and Tom didn't get his money, he couldn't pay the mob back. 
So this was the vicious cycle that Elvis was in. So you can understand why he would want to fake his death and get out from under Colonel Tom Parker, you know, this incredibly horrible work schedule and all of his, the people that were living under his roof that he was so generous to the Memphis mafia. uh, They just backstabbers, horrible, horrible people. He had no one. He had no one. He was alone. Elvis is one of the most popular musicians on the planet for a long time, he is the most popular musician on the planet. And he splits 50-50 with another guy, plus the expenses. That means Elvis is making less money than his manager. Yes. You yes. know, and, and you think, plus the record labels take their cut. And you know what, the, I mean, the record labels find ways to creatively screw you out of everything. Well, he's, he lost his royalties as well because Priscilla decided to sue him again for divorce after they had settled once. It wasn't enough, so she took him back to court Elvis had no money, so he had to sell his royalties back to RCA. So he got nothing from record sales. All he and now made. You can see why he's eating perform- peanut butter and bananas. Yeah, all he yeah. had was. Now he did. He, he was worth ten million dollars at the time of his death. That's a paltry sum compared to what he was revenue. He was he he was the first artist to bring in a billion dollars. He ends up with ten million. That's including Graceland, his jets, and everything. Ten million dollars. So. Um, the other problem that, that did Elvis in was, you know, he wanted a federal agent's badge. He loved, that was his thing. He collected badges. Every city he stopped, he got a badge from the sheriff's department, but the one he didn't have was an FBI badge. So in 1970, he writes a letter to Richard Nixon. He says, you know what? I spent a lot of time in Las Vegas. I see a lot of bad dudes because the mob was running Vegas. I can be your ears and your eyes in Vegas. All I want in return, I want to serve my country. He was a patriot. We may Now we may say that's kind of corny, but Elvis was, he loved his country. And he wasn't one of these counterculture guys. He didn't like the drug scene. Yes, he had, he took prescription drugs, but he didn't like, he didn't take street drugs. He wasn't a drinker. He didn't like what was happening to the United States in the 1960s. So he said he, he would, was a vet. He, well, he was. He would spy for Nixon. So he got a federal agent's badge. But now, so the FBI put their own agents in Elvis's band. He had a huge band. He had an orchestra and backup singers. So there's a few FBI agents could, could kind of disappear inside his band as they're performing two shows a night you know, for two months of the year at the, the Las Vegas International Hotel. So now he's got members of the FBI in his band and they're all spying on the mob, except Tom Parker's in bed with the mob. Tom Parker oh. used the mob to get Elvis that gig at the International. So, so Elvis is shooting himself in the foot. Now he's pissed off Tom Parker. He's pissed off the mob. The other problem is Elvis is using his FBI badge in inappropriate ways. There's a classic story Someone stole Elvis's pinky ring in Las Vegas, and that individual gets on a plane at the Las Vegas airport. Imagine this. Elvis is running down the runway strip, waving his FBI badge. He flags the taxiing <laughs> plane down. It's a true story. He flags it down. They stop. Elvis is waving an FBI badge. What are you going to do? You're going to stop. <laughs> he boards the plane. He finds the fellow in the plane, and he throttles him in his seat. So there's a lot of these stories where, you know, Elvis is, you know, over stretching the bounds with his FBI badge, but, you know, cause now that passenger is suing the airline and that he actually delayed flights in and out of the, the airport for like two hours because of that. Imagine the backup all because of a, a pinky ring. So Elvis, by the time he died, he had the FBI were kind of ticked off at him. The mob was very upset with him. 
Tom Parker figured out that Elvis was worth more dead than alive because he had moved on to merchandising. You put a an Elvis button or an Elvis image on a poster. Elvis doesn't need to perform. Elvis doesn't even need to be alive to sell those. So El- Tom Parker was done with Elvis. He could die for all I care is what he thought. Plus, he had just written out a lot of people from his will at the behest of Vernon because Vernon had married again, had stepchildren. Vernon was divorcing. He wanted all those out of Elvis's will. Because of money problems, Elvis had to fire a lot of his staff. It was Vernon that did it. A lot of the Memphis Mafia, they get fired. Uh, They write this tell-all book just before Elvis died called Elvis What Happened. Elvis read it. He was heartbroken that they would do this to him. So at the time of his death, there was a long line of people that wanted Elvis dead. And It really uh, seems plausible that he could have plus plus you look at the toxicology reports elvis was not a hopeless drug addict which i always assumed he was that he was addicted to prescribed drugs not true he 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 had a lot of prescriptions but because of the way vernon handled the money if vernon saw that the memphis mafia had their drugs paid for by elvis they would have been cut off so all the drugs that were used by the memphis mafia all the staff Elvis paid for them and they were under his name because if anybody had taken all those drugs that were prescribed, there was enough drugs there to, to kill a herd of cattle. <laughs> all Elvis right. didn't take all those. When he, the toxicology reports found therapeutic levels of prescribed drugs, therapeutic, not lethal, not toxic, therapeutic levels, which you would expect to find in someone who took prescribed drugs responsibly. Yeah. So and, that didn't and, kill him. And apparently he started chewing his tongue off i mean because uh, i was they, listening to one yeah. of the episodes yeah and then one of his, his his tongue was bitten almost off when they that found just sounded him. horrible <laughs> yeah when they found him on the floor of the bathroom oh, God. uh he, he was rigor mortis had set in lividity had set in which is is basically the pool the blood pools at the extremities, or if you're lying face down, the blood will will um, will gather, you know, under the uh, the skin on your face, your upper torso. He was face down, so his face and his neck and his upper torso were black blue. He was unrecognizable. When the EMT arrived at Graceland, they actually thought that the the person on the floor was a, a black man because his face was purple. Um. And yes, his tongue was protruding and it had, he'd had, it was half bitten off, which are not to give too, too much away, but those are signs of strangulation. Yeah, I was wondering that that, that did seem uh, very suspicious when I heard that detail. So yeah. um, so what do you think, you know, in your heart of hearts? I mean, is Elvis dead? Is he alive? Was he murdered? Was he in Home Alone? <laughs> Someone sent me that that uh, that gif just after that I released that. He said, "How could he? How could he have been murdered in 1977 when he was in Home Alone in 1990?" Well, very quick <laughs> aside, you know, that. you know, a lot of the the Elvis sightings, the Elvis had doubles uh, because he cranked out in the space of about uh, six years, thirty or ten years, maybe something like thirty-seven movies. He couldn't be in all of those places all at once. So they utilized doubles all the time. Susanna Lee, an actress who co-starred with Elvis in Paradise Hawaiian style, wrote about this. I mean, she knew. She, she worked with the doubles. There were lots of Elvis doubles, and they 
they weren't, they, they just didn't have the same physicality that sort of looked like them from behind. And if you use a, yeah. you know, if you shoot from a, a wide shot, no one will know. No, they looked like Elvis. Some of them had surgery to look more like Elvis. So I'm sure oh, there are so a lot. So there's actual people that had surgery. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So no, I, um, after this episode and, and, um, and interviewing Steve Ubaney, who wrote who murdered Elvis, it's a fascinating mm-hmm. book, uh, who also received a death threat. Um, when he went down to a book signing in Memphis, a police officer, a man disguised as a police officer came up to Steve Ubaney and, and basically said, watch what you're doing here. All these years later, can you imagine? Uh, yeah. but after, after speaking with Steve Ubaney, yeah, I'm pretty certain Elvis is dead and murdered. And as Steve Ubaney said, while we continue this ridiculous fantasy of looking for a live Elvis, this cold case, a murder has taken place and a, this cold case is getting colder and colder. And meanwhile, who knows, the murderer is still running around somewhere. Right. And we're doing nothing about it, but laughing uh, about um, Elvis exactly. sightings, exactly. right? Yeah. yeah. Wow, it's sobering. What I think is interesting there, though, is that we're talking about how, like, Tom Parker realized how much Elvis had to work to, so he could stay out of debt. And that's so similar, I feel, to how Michael Jackson, at the end of his life, when he had to, I mean, how many shows did he schedule at the O2? Right. Like 50? Like, so, like what? Yeah. He's going to play 50 shows at this one theater? And he had to do that. You know, for money. Yeah. And he eventually, I mean, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You know, people know that they're like, this is their cash cow. This is the way, you know, and they push them because without these great people, they're, they're not going to get paid. I think right. it's better now uh, than it was, but in the, in the, certainly in the 60s, you had the mob. I mean, they ran everything. They were looking for legitimate businesses to buy into. Uh, and the recording industry back in the 60s really was the Wild West. You had people that were, they were sociopaths. Now they're corporations. It's a little different. Um, but you had people like Tom Parker or, you know, even going back to the days of Hollywood with the, the you know, the studio heads that would run someone like Judy Garland into the ground. And they were just a piece of meat. They were a commodity. They didn't care. And these people were alone. Uh, and um, they were just, they were almost treated like veal, you know, kept in right. the dark given enough just to survive. And is it any wonder? And this is soul destroying. You're alone. You're cut off. You forget who you are. You're surrounded by strangers. None of them care about you, but they t- they're paid to tell you that they do. Uh, is it any wonder that people become, they have this existential ennui and then they turn drugs and alcohol to so that they can feel something again. Yeah, it's yeah, it's to, a real to fill up the emptiness. This is the old. This is to me is the, the recurring theme I'm seeing again and again and again, and it's 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 tragic. Why anyone would want to go into that business? Wow, it's beyond me. Well, hopefully, like in Elvis's case, um, hopefully at least his his ghost lives on. I was talking to uh, one of our friends. Um, in, in Hawaii, uh, Lopaka Kapanui, and um, we're we're planning uh, the Hawaii Paracon this year with him. And uh, he was telling us, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, that we would be talking to you. And he was talking to me about Elvis and said that Elvis had a, a secret getaway um, on uh, the windward side of Oahu uh, in uh, the area known as uh, Lani Kai. 
and that he would get away there, you know, more often than people knew, and that the people that owned that estate where where he used he used to uh, escape to, you know, from 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 you know this tyrant, um, and you know this this horrible existence that he had, uh, say that that he is. He is still seen there. His ghost is still seen um, in in that place where he he could get away at least for a little while. Very cool. Very cool. So the the king still lives in Hawaii. That, <laughs> that sounds like a, that sounds like a nice place to retire. Sure. Why not? <laughs> spend eternity. Like when people, I always get depressed when people have to haunt the places they worked at. Oh yeah, sometimes you can still hear the janitor. <laughs> That's horrible. You think the janitor signed up for that? That's right. Let's make a pack. He's like, right he's now. like, I was gonna make like, he's like, I'm gonna make like ten bucks an hour. It's gonna be great. I'm gonna do it for a couple years. Not, I'm gonna do it after I'm for dead. eternity. <laughs> you have an eternity ca- contract. Let's make a pact right now, Richard, that when we die, we're all gonna haunt Hawaii. A good place. <laughs> That's a good, That's a good place. place. So, Richard, one last question for you, and i got to thank you for joining us today, and we're going to tell everybody where they can find uh, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone and find more of your work as soon as we're done. But, uh, you know, the one thing that I'm thinking about here is that we're talking about all of these classic rock people. You know, when you talk about the 27 Club, and we're talking about Elvis, we're talking about Jim Morrison, uh, Robert Johnson obviously goes way back, but it seems like all these legends are really centered around that rock explosion from the 50s through the 70s. And is there something that in your research and, and the stuff you've been talking about in the shows and everything, was there something different about those characters or different about the time or different about the music scene then that we think of like the post 80s, we don't have those same kind of legends. Like we're sitting here talking about uh, Jimmy Page having some kind of demonic ritual with Robert Plant and John Bonham in, a, in Alistair Crowley's house over Loch Ness and how that affected everybody. We're, you know, we're, we're talking about Elvis you know, being a ghost and Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. And even though I think that Pitbull probably sold his soul to the <laughs> devil, nobody's made that a story yet. So what are different about these characters that we're kind of talking about today than maybe the modern music industry where we, we don't have the same kind of story? That's a great question. And... and... When you talk about a band like the Beatles or like Elvis, uh, who were, you know, beyond megastars, Elvis, probably the most famous person ever. Uh, So, you know, why don't we have an Elvis today? And a lot of that has to do with just how how fractured uh, society is. I mean, back then, you know, there was AM radio and that was it. And the local DJ picked his own records and he was a star maker. And so the, the, the distribution system was, was totally different. Um, you know, you had five or six TV stations and, you know, Tuesday, and there was no PVR Tuesday night was Milton Berle night or whatever it was. And the streets were right. empty because everyone was watching, you know, Milton Berle or the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, there was a, a sense, there was a shared experience back then that will never exist again, just because of the way information was distributed. It was far more limited, uh, far fewer channels of distribution. So that was, that's, I think part of the zeitgeist back then. So that, you know, you only had room for so many people to come down that pipe and, and occupy 
that that space of superstardom at one time. Uh, now everyone's walking around with earbuds and they program their own music station. Uh, they don't buy albums anymore. They they buy MP3s and they there's no idea of a concept album where you listen to a an album in proper order because one track leads into the next. That's all gone. Right. The idea of listening to Dark Side of the Moon while watching Wizard of Oz, like Dark Side of the Moon is 34 years ago now. Like imagine... Is there any album in the past 20 years? Somebody's like, yeah, dude, you load this up to the movie. It'll blow your mind. That's right. 45 years ago. 45. Holy crap. Yeah. That's that's, right. The lost decade. (laughs) You're older than you thought. (laughs) I know. Isn't that amazing how that happens? (laughs) Yeah. I love Uh, it. (laughs) So, yeah, that's part of why I I don't think we'll have those kind of superstars again. But part, yeah, it's, it's the loss of that shared experience. Um. Where, you know, you'd go to school and everyone would say, did you, did you watch Ed Sullivan last night? And e- that was a frame of reference everyone had. No one shares the same frame of frames of reference anymore. That's part of it, I think. And the music just sucks. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. And the other, that. the other part is, the other part is, get off my lawn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's the music, uh, I know every generation sort of bemoans the, but uh, I'm actually heartened to see there are a lot of bands coming up that's, that are, that sound like old bands, uh, up in, in, um, is it Saskatoon? I get in trouble every time I talk about the sheepdogs. They're either from Saskatoon or Regina. I always get it wrong, but they, they, I mean, they've got a real, they sound like the Almond brothers. And of course you've got, um, it was this, uh, Greta Van Fleet. It sounds Greta, just Greta Van Fleet. It sounds like a Led Zeppelin tribute like it's like oh yeah, yeah no they they just forgot to record they didn't record these songs in the 1970s so here you go right there's and there's a <laughs> lot of new bands coming up like that so they're going back to the well and bringing back uh these old these old sounds which i i love in many ways i mean there's a lot of i think crap out there but but if you know where to find it there's some real jewels and there's it's almost like a renaissance of that classic rock era and even kind of a motown sound there's a band I love out of Britain called the Noisettes. Uh, and uh, then there's um, Raphael <laughs> Sadiq, who sounds like a young Sam Cooke. So there's a lot of oh, great yeah. stuff. Okay, so people, they got a taste of this today. If they want to listen to the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, and where you go in deep on a particular topic, and these episodes are great, and they're even done, like I feel like I'm watching a, like a, a History Channel kind of show when I'm listening to it. Yeah, it's documentary style. Uh, the earlier episodes were not, but it's kind of evolved into that. So two or three interviews per ep- for ha- uh, like a half hour episode intertwined with narration. And I have a great crew that I work with, Dave Whalen, uh, who's my uh, engineer, and uh, Jamie Watson, who does those crazy little um, um, welcome backs and the the intro and the extra. He was just a cre- oh, and the, genius. And those are funny. It's it, guys. It's like it's it's like if this American Life were interesting, this is what you would listen to. <laughs> <laughs> really? So please check it out. So where? What's the website people can find it? Uh, you know, the best thing is just to Google it. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone because it's everywhere. It's it's part of Westwood One, but I'm not going to give you the 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 URL because it's too long. Uh, sure. And it's part of the Chris Jericho network. Along with uh, like Dave Schrader's show, uh, Beyond the Darkness is on 
Jericho's network too, right? I believe so. And uh, yeah, there were about six of us under Chris Jericho's umbrella, his empire. Uh, so just Google it, and it's on you know it's on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere. And please lie and give it a five star rating. Oh, that wouldn't be a lie. In our show notes, you'll find a direct link so you'll be able to listen to this. Go to the show notes, OtherSidePodcast.com slash one ninety nine, and you're gonna click the button, and then you're gonna listen to the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. You're gonna have a great time. Well, thank you very much for indulging my verbal diarrhea. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you're fantastic thank you very much for joining us today we're going to have you on again because we really had a good time and we just got to the, the start of the conversations that we need to have because there's too much fun uh, when it comes to uh, weird and wonderful legends of rock and roll thank you so we want to thank him again. That was a lot of fun. Yes, and thanks, Allison, from MilwaukeeGhosts.com, our co-host, yep. hostess. So once you're done listening to all 199 episodes of See You on the Other Side podcast, we encourage you to go check out the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone immediately <laughs> because I think it's a great show. And that's going to be in the, that's in the show notes, othersidepodcast.com slash 199, along with a downloadable version of the song for this week. Yay! And what's that song, Mike? Well, we just finished working on it, and so this is not the same. This is not a cover of the Righteous Brothers songs from the 1970s no. <laughs> by the same name. It's a, it's a, it's a totally different idea, because that, in that song, that song is called Rock and Roll Heaven, and in that song, it kind of, it lionizes the people who all died young. And uh, this song kind of, well... It, kind of makes it out to be a little more tragic than heroic. Mm. So here is our version of Rock and Roll Heaven. Will I die? Will I go?
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. I can't wait to party, but before we go party, Mike, we have to thank the, the awesome Patreon members of the See You on the Other Side Sunspot community. Yep. So thank you, each and every one of you, for being so awesome. Coolest people that we know, our Patreon community. Absolutely. We want to do a shout out to Dr. Ned for being at the level Ned. of Patreon support where he gets a shout out in every single episode. So thank you, Dr. Yes. Ned. Thank you Thank to you. all our Patreons who made 199 episodes of See You on the Other Side possible. You guys are awesome. You're the best. Next week is episode 200. And if you would like to be part of the Patreon community and maybe get in on the action before we hit our second centennial episode, then you can find the link to do that at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Uh, ah, like all the way down. <laughs>